0: We continue or actually are finished up our sermon series on Joseph. And so we began this, um, actually I've been reading this book. Uh, We'll get through this. And we talked about, you know, where we are today is very different from where we were six weeks ago. And um, we have been on this journey and we have been at this for almost 16 months. And that's why I picked this topic, you know, trying to get through a pandemic. And thanks be to God, we continue to make our way through that. And we're just so grateful for that. So um, we find ourselves this part of the story tonight, and and once again, I'm reminded um, because we we come have come full circle. You know, uh, Joseph starts out; he's uh, you know got the coat of many colors. He's he's the apple of his daddy's eye, and um, he's the favorite one. He's 17 years old, and his brothers end up throwing him in the pit. uh, As we reminded, and he ends up in prison, and um, and then he ends up being the prime minister. And so uh, we we're reminded that once again tonight, as we get to the very end of the story is that there's this kind of overarching theme to the whole Joseph story. By the way, this story is 3,500 to 4,000 years old. It was one of those stories that was probably told over and over again around campfires. And so what we find about this part of the story is that, that even in the midst of calamity, even the midst of trials, even the midst of tribulation, even the midst of something that seems so bad, that even God can take it and turn it into something good. There's that kind of overarching theme that we find. and that's what we end up tonight in this story. So let me just read them. um this little this is um this is called, uh, actually, um, this segment is called Joseph forgives his brothers, and we find it in the 50th chapter of Genesis, and it is the conclusion of the story. So let's just begin there, and then I'll have a chance to teach on this tonight. So realizing that his, their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all that wrong that we had done to him? So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave, a, gave this instruction before he died, Say to Joseph, I beg you to forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong that they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also wept and fell down before him and said, "We are we are here as your slaves." But Joseph said to them, "Don't be afraid. Am I the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, he literally is in chains." And so can you imagine being, them? we don't know exactly how long Joseph was in chains, but we know he had to be in there at least over two years because he does interpret the dreams for the, well, for the butler and for the baker. The baker doesn't end up very, in very good, in very good position. He ends up getting the, well, he ends up being killed, but the, well, but the, well, the butler ends up in pretty good graces with Pharaoh, but it took him two years to remember is, well, the one who interpreted the dream for him. So for, I don't know, maybe two, three, four, five years, we don't know how long that Joseph was literally in chains. And so what's very powerful, literally the here's a guy who was falsely accused and he ends up in chains. And I don't know about you all, but you know, if you took these chains and they're very heavy, matter, matter of fact, when I carry them apart the, across the parking lot to bring them in here tonight, you know, they are actually very heavy and i got a lot of chains. So if I take these chains and literally wrap them around me, they are really heavy and, the, and, the, and this essence of life, can you imagine as we think about when we have maybe all this guilt in our lives or the idea that we can't forgive someone. Have you ever been there? It's almost like we're wearing these chains around our neck. And they are really almost literally can take our breath away because um, how powerful the weight of all that in our lives. And so we find tonight is that Joseph, he is literally is in chains and we would think that maybe finally we find and end up in the story is that he ends up meeting him with his brothers and so forth. But what's very powerful is I really believe even the midst throughout the story until we find ourselves in the 50th chapter, Joseph continued to wear these chains, not just literally, but also in his heart. So I started to think about this this week about how heavy these chains can be in our lives. And sometimes maybe we can have resentment in our lives. Maybe we have this kind of ill feelings in our lives. Maybe we have this sense of unforgiveness in our lives. And that is the essence of wearing chains in our lives. It's the question for us to think about tonight. And this is actually a time of my sermon is, do we want to be right? Or are we able to, well, once again, are we going to have revenge in our lives? Or are we willing to release it? And I really believe that maybe Joseph goes through all three of those stages. So when I, once again, a few years ago, I preached a sermon. I said, do you wanna be right or do you wanna have a relationship? Uh, just for example, yesterday I was on the phone with them, um, uh, Spectrum Mobile, I was switching my mobile service over. And so I was going back and forth. And I don't know if you've ever changed your mobile service, but it can become rather tedious. And there are lots of numbers involved. I just want you to know that. And so he had said, well, what is this number? And I gave it to him, what's this other number? And then he had me pull up this, all this kind of like data number. And I kept, re- and literally, I mean, there was one number that it was like, I don't know, 12 or 14 numbers. And so i read it all to him. And then he read it back to me. And I said, well, let me just make sure that, that this is what, what uh, we're communicating the right thing. And then he said to me, he says, well, Mr. Hendren, that's exactly what I told you. I said, well, thank you so much for making sure that you are right. Now cancel my service. No, I didn't say that. And so it, but my point is over and over again, even our relationships, when you think about the people that we love the most, I mean, Donna and I have been married over 30 years. And there have been times in our life that I really wanted to be right. And once again, she usually won. I just want you to know that. So, and so we think about that. So you want to be right? You want to have a relationship? Or the idea, the idea, once again, you have revenge in our lives. And so Joseph had every reason to have revenge in his life. And the idea, once again, can you release it? And we don't find him, I truly believe that we, and that's where I think it's very powerful. You get to the very end of the story, at the 50th chapter, and the the Bible says, this is the place in which Joseph finally, finally, finally forgives his brothers. I was reading the story in Akita's book, and I love this, I never had read the story, but I actually looked it up, and it's actually a true story. And it's a guy, once again, you're not gonna believe it, his name is Joseph, Um, His name is Joseph Richardson. Uh, Joseph Richardson lived in the late 1800s. He was a multimillionaire. He made a ton of money in the railroad. Um, But he also um, uh, had one little slither of a piece of property, and it was uh, five feet wide. It was in New York, and it was 104 feet long. Evidently, um, uh, his first wife evidently died. He ended up remarrying and when he remarried his wife, she evidently had inherited this little sliver of piece of property in downtown New York and they um, owned it and they had kept, kept possession of it until one day a guy named Heinem, who had come to him and said, listen, I'd like to buy your property. He says, I'm going to put an apartment building right next door. He says, but I need the property. And he offered him $1,000. Now, of course, $1,000 doesn't seem like a whole lot of money, especially in New York City, but this is in the late 1800s. And so, uh, Jeff Joseph said, you know, that's, you're low balling me. There's no way. Um, I, I'm not going to take that offer. I want 5,000. And so um, Heinem went back to him and says, well, I'm not going to pay you that. He said, I'll just basically I'll just build around you. And so Heinem ended up building his apartment complex right next to that sliver, a piece of property, because he wouldn't sell it to him. And so Joseph, you're not going to believe this, but he built a spite house. Now, let me show you. I don't know if you ever heard this, but this is what a spite house looks like. In other words, and I literally looked up this. This definition And a spite house is this a building constructed or substantially modified to irritate neighbors or any party with land stakes because long term occupation occupation is the is not the primary purpose of these houses. They frequently sport strange and impractical structures. Spite houses may create obstruct obstructions such as blocking out light or blocking access to neighboring buildings or can be flagrant symbols of defiance. Spite houses. I never knew they existed, but they exist all over the place. I looked them up this last week. So uh, Joseph decided to build a spite house and he's not only did he build it, but this guy's a multi-millionaire and he decided to live in it. And it's only five feet wide and 104 feet long in order to be Right. Now, can you imagine the modifications in a house that's only five feet wide? When I read this article, I read this, uh, actually read, it, this would have been your dining room table. 18 inches. This is it. And do you realize that Joseph, in order to make sure that he was right, he had to build really tiny hallways. And evidently, someone had come in, and the person was a rather large person. They actually got stuck in the hallway. He had literally had to go down to his skibbies in order to push him through. This is how tight the house was. And Joseph lived in the spite house for 14 years just to make a point, just to be right. Wow. And so when we think about life and our perspective, how long are we gonna maybe gonna carry a grudge? How long are we gonna have this animosity towards each other? How long do we feel like we have to be right and we can't, we can't release it? Because we continue to wear the chains. So I was thinking this last week, my friend, Gary search, God bless him. He, he'll be here tomorrow. Gary's in charge of our salt team. I, I have a, a guy. I really appreciate Gary. He's a wonderful friend. And, um, he came and, uh, did the, he gave a testimony this last week at men's breakfast. Um, and, and he did a fantastic job. And I, I at, when, uh, Don Bucky had asked me about someone in the church that might be able to give a testimony, I said, why don't you get Gary to come and give his testimony about forgiveness? So here's Gary's story. Some of y'all maybe know it, maybe you don't. Once upon a time, Gary was married many, many years ago. And when he took his marriage vows, he literally took them with, well, tell death, do us part. He thought, intended to believe he was gonna be married to his wife for the rest of his life. Um, they had a couple of beautiful children. Um, and so one day he noticed that evidently things weren't quite right in the relationship. And um, she ended up running off with another man. And it wasn't just any other man. It happened to be Gary's, one of his dear friends. And not only was he one of his dear friends, but it happened to be the preacher, oh my. And so he was left to raise the two small children. I think one was two and one was six. And his ex-wife ran off with the preacher. And so for 20 years, as Gary tells the story in your marriage ceremony, so they were at a Marriott, some very nice Marriott somewhere in the country. And and so it turned out that um, um, about a week or so before, evidently the pastor that was supposed to preside over the ceremony wasn't able to make it. And so Gary's son called him up and says, Dad, um, I need to ask you a question. Would it be okay for mom's husband, you know, the preacher, to preside at my wedding. Ooh, silence. And then Gary said, you know, son, I'll do whatever is gonna make you happy because it's your day. So then Gary had to do some serious soul searching, right? Because he's gonna be standing up there with the person that was supposed to be his friend who actually ran up with his wife and he's going to be standing up there reading scripture and he's going to be presiding at his son's wedding. And that was going to be a real challenge for him. And so that um, was, I think it was the day before the wedding. And so evidently God, I would call this the Holy Spirit messing with Gary. I mean, I really trust, I really truly believe that sometimes the Holy Spirit just messes with us and convicts us, reveals something to us. And possibly even release something in our lives that we continue to hold on to, that we continue to have this maybe revenge or this sense of unforgiveness in our heart. We just can't, once again, the chains just cannot fall down. For 20 years, Gary carried those chains. So on the day, or the, either the day or the day, uh, the, of the wedding ceremony, Gary found himself in the hotel reading scripture about forgiveness. And this is some of the scripture he shared with us at the testimony this last week. He says, a kind and compassionate, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ has forgiven you. For if you forgive other people when they have sinned against you, your, he- your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't, do not forgive other, others their sins, your heavenly father will not forgive your sins. And then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus says, and I tell you, seven times the seventy, which means 70, 70 times. And so Gary continued to read the scripture. And so he find himself one through the Marriott and they, he sees his ex-wife. And he actually, he said, it was almost like, he says, unprecedented. Where we're on this really exclusive resort. Usually it's just hustle and bustle of people everywhere. And he says, it was like uh, the Lord had, part of the sea. And it was just me and my ex-wife. And he says, I called her over to me and says, I, I need to talk to you. And so of course she was probably rather apprehensive when he calls her and says, I need to talk to you. And he finally, after 20 years of wearing those chains, he says, I just want you to know, I forgive you. It was all very painful, but I want you to know, I forgive you. And so they had that conversation. He says, Harold, you wouldn't believe it. And he shared this this last week, the men's breakfast. He says, you know, about five or 10 minutes later, it was like the Lord just parted the sea. Here comes my ex-friend, the preacher, who ran off with my wife. I see him coming down the hallway. He says, hey, I need to talk to you. And so imagine his heart was about to pump out of his chest, right? So he comes over and he says, I just want you to know, I forgive you, I don't want to do this anymore. And so, you know, what's interesting is his children said, after that happened, he says, dad, there's something different about you. Something's happened in your life. They noticed it before they even knew what they, even he had those conversations with his ex-wife and his former friend who became, who was the pastor who ran off with his wife. Forgiveness. So in our lives, so, you know, sometimes we can find ourselves in what I would call the spite house, right? We can feel a sense of resentment. We can have all this, these chains that continue to um, weigh us down in our lives, or we can do what, actually, what Gary was able to do, is to be able to cast off the chains. And just as the praise band just sang just a minute ago about finally being set free. Now, how did Gary finally get to that place? I believe it's a conviction of the Holy Spirit And I believe the Holy Spirit can can continue to convict me and can continue to convict you when we're really out of order. Sometimes, you know, we find ourselves in the spite house. And what I mean by the spite house, what it means maybe, maybe you're not really spiteful, but the idea of not letting, continue to hold on to something and not let it go. And it continues to fester in your heart. And you know, you're just not in the right place in your relationship with Jesus Christ or this other person. So we find this place in the story. And once again, this, this is a story of Joseph. And so um, finally, Joseph, um, uh, his, uh, uh, Jacob, his dad, well, by, by the way, you know, we have four, uh, four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Okay, so Jacob finally tells his boys to go down to Egypt and go get some food because they're starving to death. But they hear that there's food. Of course, they don't know that Joseph's the one who's in charge and he's the prime minister. He's the gatekeeper of all the food. And so they finally show up. And so what does Joseph do? He hears them, he understands them and they don't realize that he understands Hebrew because they don't realize it's their brother. After all, they sold him off in prison, well, for, as a slave many, many years before. And so, and so once again, what we find in the story is that Joseph ends up throwing him in jail. Why does he do that? Well, I think that maybe there's a side of Joseph, what I would call revenge. What goes around comes around. And so Joseph has this sense of, you know, animosity towards his brother. He, are, he accuses him of a spy. He gives them spies. He gives them a hard time and he throws themselves in prison for three days and there they sit. And so for, once again, this time, his brothers, they're in chains. And what's interesting, they are in the physical chains, but what's very powerful is that Joseph has all the power. He's holding all the cards. He's in completely control, but in his heart, he is still carrying this heavy burden, this life, this resentment towards his brothers. And he continues to carry the chains. And so what we find in this part of the story is that finally he says, you know what? I tell you what, I'm going to let you go. He says, go back home. Where are you guys from? Uh, Cana, Kansas, where are you guys from? And he says, well, we're, you know, we're down from the down the road here, you know, um, up near Cana. Oh, okay. I've never heard of that place. And he says, I'm going to send you away. But then he says, but under one condition. He says, I get to keep one of you. And so he points to Simeon. He says, this is what I want you to do. I heard you talk about your, your younger brother. What's his name? Um, um, ben, Benjamin, right? I want you to go back. I want to meet him. Go get Benjamin and bring him back. And I'm going to hold Simeon for collateral. And then we'll talk. So what's interesting about this story is that you know it's very powerful because I think that God is truly what I would call the Holy Spirit is messing or convicting Joseph. I mean, why did he do that? Because he once again did he want to be feel like he had to be right? Did he feel like he had one up on his brothers? I mean, after all, what, look what they had done to him. He has all all the right, every right to have this animosity animi, um, be, uh, animosity towards his brothers, and so finally he lets them go. And they end up going home. Now, what I think is very interesting, what Paul says, the Apostle Paul talks about justice, because once again, there has to be accountability, right? Somebody has to pay. But Paul says a very interesting thing about justice. He says, Never pay back evil for evil, never avenge yourselves, leave that to God, for he has said that he will repay those who deserve it. And so, what's very interesting about this part of the story is that Joe. Joseph sends his brothers back home and um, to go fetch Benjamin. Now this is what's very interesting about the story. And let me just teach for a second is that this is Jacob's response because the brothers go back and says, dad, you're not gonna believe it. We met, we, well, we met the prime minister um, and he actually, he put us in chains for three days and then he, he did the darndest thing. He let us go, but he kept Simeon and he wants to meet Benjamin. And Jacob says, oh gosh, you can't take Benjamin. I love Benjamin. He's my last son. He's the one who reminds me of Rachel, right? By the way, Rachel is the one who lost died in childbirth having Benjamin. So once again, every time he looked at Benjamin, he'd already lost Joseph because Rachel had given birth to Joseph and he had given birth to Benjamin. And so every time he looked upon he he already lost Joseph. And every time he looks at Benjamin, he reminds him of Rachel, who was the love of his life. So this is what what Jacob says. The father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. And so what we find this part of the story is that Jacob seems like he's on a pity party. Woe is me. I've already lost Joseph. Now i am lost Simeon. And now I can't believe you're gonna take Benjamin away from me. And what's very interesting part of the story is, you know who steps up to the plate? Judah. And you may say, who's Judah? Well, Judah's the one who once again, He's the one who came up with the idea to throw Joseph in the pit, and he's the one who sold off his brother, and he's the one who's dabbling in slave trade. Judah. Judah's the one who stamps up and says, Dad, listen, there's no getting around this. He talks straight to his dad. He says, Listen, we have got to take Benjamin back to go get Simeon. And he's then he steps. What I love about it, he steps to the plate and he says, Listen, dad, I'll take responsibility. I mean, once again, this is 20 years later. He says, I will take responsibility for Benjamin. Nothing's going to happen to Benjamin. I promise you, dad, let me have Benjamin. We'll go back to Egypt. We'll get the food. I'll talk to the prime minister. I'll get Simeon back and everything's going to be fine in Jacob's world, right? This is what he promises dad. Now, what's very interesting about the story is, is we have to ask ourselves, why is it Judah that steps up? I think there's a part of the, uh, well, the missing link of the story is you have to go back to the 38th chapter. And the 38th chapter tells us something about Judah. I mean, out of all the people, Judah's the one who finally said, and what's interesting, I think there's a reason why. I think that Joseph, uh, Judah is the one who actually is mature. He has matured because the family is so dysfunctional and Judas finally says, listen, dad, this is what's gonna have to happen. Somebody's gonna take charge. And so Judah finally, finally, finally becomes the mature one. But what's very powerful about the story is, Judah's not only the one who sold his brother off into bondage, but Judah has some pretty Jerry Springer stuff going on in his life. You have to ask yourself, why in the world here all of a sudden we're going through Joseph's story and all of a sudden we have this little story about Judah in the 38th chapter. It almost seems almost out of order. So this is a story about Judah. Once upon a time after Judah goes back home, once again, he's one of the 12 sons. And so Judah ends up having three sons. And so um, son number one ends up marrying a woman by the name of Tamar. Now what's happening with the first son is son number, son number one ends up dying. Okay, what happens in that tradition is that, well, the next in order, so Tamar is uh, now a widow, so she ends up marrying son number two. You're not gonna believe it. Son number two dies. So he's got three sons, and he's thinking, I'm not risking putting Tamar with my third son. I don't know if she's a black widow, or what's going on, right? So Tamar is left, well, high and dry. So uh, she's pretty smart. And so what happens with Tamar is, once upon a time, he, she, well, evidently, she finds that her father-in-law has actually come into town and she ends up pretending that she's a prostitute. She lures him in, evidently, to his tent. He doesn't realize it's Tamar. They have sexual relationships and she ends up pregnant with Ju- her father-in-law, Ju- uh, Judah's child. And so what's interesting, before he leaves the tent, evidently, he gives her two items. He gives his, his walking stick and he gives her a necklace. And so a few, well, about six, nine months later, evidently, um, all of a sudden, she ends up pregnant and she goes to her father-in-law and says, this is your son. And Judah says, no way, Jose, it can't be my son. And And then he calls her out and says, he ends up gonna try to kill her. And then so Tamar says, you're not gonna get me. He says, by the way, here's your walking stick and here is your necklace. And all of a sudden, Judah realized in a very embarrassing situation. He's embarrassed his family. He's embarrassed himself. He's embarrassed all of what's going on in, that, in the story. And so what's very powerful about the story, we have to ask ourselves, why is this part of the story, why is this little Judah part added to the story? First of all, I think it's really important that we have to understand is that Judah is the one who finally shows some sense of maturity in the story. The second part of this is, I think this is really important. Vengeance is mine, so saith the Lord. He will repay, not you. God convicts even the Judas in the world. And what I mean by that is that, you know, what's interesting is that Judah gets his own. Judah is the one who ultimately, um, is in an embarrassment. And so Joseph doesn't have to do anything in this situation. Judah does it upon himself and he ends up being convicted for what he's done, which is, I think it's a really important part of the story is sometimes we feel as if that we have to get even or we have revenge towards other people. And you know, what's very powerful. And I love this quote from Max Lucado. He says, forgiveness doesn't diminish justice. It just entrusts it to God. Let me say that again. Forgiveness doesn't diminish justice, it just entrusted to God. And so we all have to choose when it comes to our lives, are we gonna choose the chains or are we gonna choose the house of grace? So I think it's very powerful when we look at the story because once again, we find the story is that we have, I think it's very important when we get to the end of the story what it calls forgiving our enemies. And that is easier said than done. Give me an amen on that. If you ever been really wrong by someone in your life, forgiving that person is not an easy thing. And as, as I mentioned, Gary's carried those chains for 20 years. And I think it was very, very interesting and very powerful. So, well, you know, I, I thought about this, this last week is that is that um, sometimes it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. You ever heard that expression? True story, this last week, we have a dog. His name is Charles. Um, uh, Donna loves that dog. I some head and he ends up and he takes a beeline and takes on the other two dogs right and and so then all heck breaks loose and the poor woman who's who's holding the other dog she's traumatized she's going like this and so like oh this is not good this is not good this is not good so I go and get Charlie and I grab a hold of him and I pin him down and I get the collar back on him and I'm pro- ap- apologizing profusely for my in my deranged dog you know I just I don't have a decide you know. And what's interesting in the perspective about life is this, Don't, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And I thought this was interesting. The word opportunity in the Greek comes from the word topos and the word topos is connected to the word in the English word topography, which means ground or territory or turf. So the interesting thing, anger gives ground To the devil. And and so when I, I think about this story, as I think, once again, in perspective, we can hold on to, once again, some... In Charlie's world, you know, these other dogs were a threat to him. They were, you know, endangering his turf. And he could not see past that. But it's an interesting thing. Anger gives ground toward the devil. So maybe instead of plotting how we, well, how to get even with someone, maybe we turn our attention away from what they did to you, to what Jesus did for you. When it comes to forgiveness, all of us are beginners. Locato says, no one owns a secret formula. As long as you are trying to forgive, you're forgiving. It's when you no longer try to try that bitterness sets in. So we have this story. You know, we, I, I call the brothers in the dog house, Joseph in the spite house. And once again, Jacob's family is trying to move into the grace house. And I think it's very powerful. Once again, so he finally ends up. Um, the brothers come back, and they he finally they finally end up with Joseph, and there's Benjamin, and uh, Joseph just comes unglued when he sees Benjamin. Um, he has dinner with them, and then he finally and they still don't know what's Joseph, and then he sends him back, and he plays a trick on him. Once again, what is Joseph doing? He plays a trick on his brothers. He sends them back off with this food, and, and takes and puts the money back in their bags, and he also takes one of this price check and he hides it in Benjamin's bag. And so they and then they and then they he sends his his whole entourage to go get them. And he says, I can't believe that you would steal from me after I've done all this good things for you. And his brother says, It's not literally the little, little translation, they have tore the crows, which means they're literally pulling their hair out. We didn't do it, we didn't have anything to do it. And it's Benjamin who's gonna be in big trouble. And so Judah steps up. I it's not his fault. I'll take responsibility. I can't do I can't go back to my dad without him. Please take me, don't take him. And so finally. In the midst of all this that goes on, Joseph finally reveals who he truly is. He says, Hey, it's me. And so what's very interesting, and they, and they can't literally translation, Joseph spoke to his brothers, I'm Joseph, is my, is, is my father really still alive? But his brothers couldn't say a word. They were speechless. They could believe that they were actually hearing and seeing it. It was Joseph. Come closer, he says, Joseph to, said to his brothers, and they came closer. I'm Joseph, your brother whom you sold into Jesus, but don't feel badly. Don't blame yourselves for selling me. God was behind it. God sent me here ahead of you to save lives which is the overarching in the story, isn't it? How God could take something looks, well, once again, it seems so bad and tragic, and yet God can take it and turn it into something good. So here, I close with this last little part of the story today, and I think it's just amazing. I never had thought about this, but there are some parallels when we think about Joseph, and we think about, once again, Joseph becomes the, well, the brother of prince, or a prince, of, well, a prince of Egypt, and so well, there's this connection that we find in the story to Jesus and Jesus ends up where we find, once again, Jesus as a brother. Now I've always talked, heard about Jesus being, you know, Jesus as savior, Jesus as good shepherd, Jesus has all these different titles, but there is a place in the Bible that Jesus is referred to as a brother. Matter of fact, the Bible says Jesus didn't, didn't respond directly, but he said this in the gospel of Matthew. Who do you think my mother and brothers are? He then stretched out his hand towards his disciples. Look closely. These are my mother and this is these are my brothers. Obedience is thicker than blood. The person who obeys my heavenly Father will, all be, will who is my brother and my sister and my mother. So I never thought about Jesus being not only my Savior, but he according to him he's our brother. And I thought this is an interesting parallel between Joseph who is, becomes his brother, who becomes the prince of Egypt. And that Jesus becomes the prince of peace. So here's this interesting, and I'll close with this. So Joseph was a favorite son of Jacob. Jesus was the beloved son of God. Joseph wore the coat of many colors. Jesus did deeds of many wonders. Joseph fed the nations, but Jesus fed the multitudes. Joseph prepared his people for the upcoming famine, but Jesus came to prepare people for eternity. Under Joseph's command, grain was increased. Under Jesus's command, loaves and fish multiplied. Joseph responded to a crisis in the world. Jesus responded to crisis after, after crisis in his world, still the storm, raised the dead, healed the lame, that healed the blind and the possessed. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold out for 30. Joseph was falsely accused and thrown into prison, but Jesus was condemned to die when he was innocent of all charges. The brothers thought they would never see their little brother, Joseph, again. Then Jesus' tomb was sealed. The disciples thought the same thing. Joseph resurfaced as a prince. So did Jesus, but a prince of peace. God gave Jesus what Pharaoh gave Joseph, a promotion to to the highest place God raised him from the death and set him on a throne he is in charge of it all and has the final word on everything and there's one major difference between Joseph's reign and And Jesus' reign, Joseph's reign ended, but Jesus' reign never does. He is reigning as we speak. Heaven will never see an empty throne. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the savior of the world and he is our brother. And what Jesus says to all of us tonight, we don't have to carry the chains That Jesus Christ has forgiven us and released us, and he hopes that we will do the same in our lives. Can we live into the words that we sang in the praise song tonight? My chains are gone, I am free.